I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 10 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. In his rhetoric against false teaching, Paul believes the Christians in Colossae, the ones who have heard the story of Jesus and received him as king, already have the secret of perseverance, as does everyone who belongs to the way. We are about two months now into our summer study of the first century letter that we now call Colossians. Tonight, Paul, the author of the letter, is going to bring together all the points that he's made up until now in the first chapter and then sum up where we're headed from here in the process. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the scriptures? And we're going to read Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember we read that Paul was reminding the Christians in Colossae of the baseline. He was reminding them of the foundation, the lens through which they are to understand all of life in the world, that all truth has been revealed and is revealed to us in Jesus of Nazareth. And he reminds them, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And really, Paul has been on about this kind of thing for a while now in his letter, so he reiterates it again and again. Verse 6 and 7, Bible scholars argue, act as the hinge of the letter. Here, Paul summarizes the entire letter, where he's been from up to this point and where he's going from here, in two simple lines. Look down again at verse 6. He writes, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I like how he puts that, just as you received Christ or Messiah Jesus as Lord. No one comes to faith in a vacuum. You don't get there all on your own. I always laugh at the whole premise of, uh, you know, what I often call kindness evangelism, which is this premise that never, you never explicitly say anything about Jesus, but you be really super nice to people, and they'll probably get there on their own. So you think, <laughs> you had this really kind interaction with someone and you probably left them saying, man, that person was so polite. You know, it just occurred to me that maybe a first century rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth is actually the incarnation of the creator God and that I can be reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of that rabbi and by receiving him as master over my entire life, living according to his teachings and way of life. Man, I'm glad that person was so nice and left a big tip. Thank God for that person. Um, that's not how it usually goes. That was sarcasm, by the way. This is what I have to offer in the way of humor, so stick with me. That's not how you came to faith in Jesus, by exclusively based on the kindness of some other person, nor anyone else comes to faith that way. So at some point, the idea is that every person in this room who does follow Jesus, they received Christ Jesus as Lord, to borrow Paul's wording, and you received it from a source. And we didn't 
see or hear Jesus in person, unfortunately. So what we were given was handed down by centuries of the Jesus movement that began in another part of the world in a different language amongst a different people within a different culture. And yet here we are. We received, those of us who follow Jesus, we received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, contrary to the way it's often thrown around, Christ is not part of Jesus' name. It's a title reserved for a specific person anointed by God as the true king of Israel and of the entire world, the Christ Jesus, the Lord. Lord in Greek is kurios. It means master, the person in authority, the person who is in leadership over another person or another institution. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the original Greek translation of the Old Testament, kurios was the word used to translate God's proper name, Yahweh. So when Paul talks about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, he isn't talking about raising your hand to repeat a magical incantation and invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior at the end of youth camp. He's saying that at some point, you came to believe the story of God, that Jesus is the long-awaited King of the world, the Messiah, the Kurios, and more than that, you came to believe that Jesus is the incarnation of the creator God in the flesh. You came to understand Jesus as your master, your Lord, your authority, your leader. You handed over the trajectory of your entire life to his lordship and his authority. Maybe you were taught these things by your parents and at some point you made the faith in which you were raised your own. Or maybe it was a conversation that you had with a friend or several friends, or maybe it was a series of conversations over a long period of time with several different people. Crazy as it sounds to us, there are all sorts of ways that people come to faith in Jesus. There's all sorts of stories about people coming to faith after receiving the story of Jesus in a dream. In fact, in several uh, surveys published about former Muslims converting from Islam to Christianity, a high percentage, as, as many as 25%, depending on the survey, cite dreams of Jesus as the catalyst for their radical change of life. For us, maybe it was something like a sermon at church, or, or it was a get-together with several friends, or you were invited to, into some kind of conversation, or you had a crisis, and through that crisis, you came to believe something based on something someone else said, or maybe you said a prayer. But somehow, we were presented with the gospel or the good news, the story of Jesus as the king of the universe, and we decided to receive that story as the truth over our lives. So, if you want to know how to make that important moment last, Paul writes this, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Ta-da! That is the big secret. As cultural pressure mounts against this small minority of the Jesus movement in the first century, how will they guard themselves against pin leaks in their faith and theology? How will they protect themselves against false teaching without walling themselves off from the culture and being terrified of every new idea? That's not what they're after. How will they resist temptation to compromise the truth that they've received of Jesus? Just as you've received Jesus as God, Continue to live your lives in him. Keep on keeping on. And scholars argue that another, maybe even better way to translate that same phrase, continue in him, would be continue to walk in Jesus. Meaning it's not a passive position. You just believe the same thing intellectually. But this is an active way of life that will be evidenced by the way that you behave and the things that you say and the way that you organize your life and the decisions that you make and the way that you spend your time and your money. All of it is walking in Jesus. 
And Paul creates this vivid word picture of faithful, lifelong discipleship. Look back at verse 7. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So the idea is that this truth that we've come to believe, it takes deep root in our hearts and our thinking and feeling and in our will, and it is then fortified by our commitment to it, which in turn overflows in constant, joyful gratitude. And we've seen Paul use this formula already in chapter 1. If you remember, he said, live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit, there's the tree metaphor again, every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, that idea of faithfulness and continuing, and giving joyful thanks, gratitude, again, to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Same thing as in our text tonight. So then, just as you received Messiah Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted, again, the tree metaphor, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So the idea is life in Jesus, long-term, continuing forward, action and will, rooted, bearing fruit, the whole plant metaphor, built up and growing, that you're changing over time, strengthened, and out all of that, the end result is gratitude, thankfulness. Remember that part for later. But Paul hasn't finished making his point. Here's why he's been reiterating this over and over again. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on the Messiah. Notice that language, see to it that no one takes you captive. The Greek word literally means kidnap. The image is of someone being captured and then enslaved. And remember the context. Paul is writing to a church of both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus they're doing good, they've been growing up in the faith and maturing, but there's some kind of false teaching that's begun to leak into the church and threatening to lead them astray. There's some debate about exactly what kind of false teaching has begun to permeate the Colossian church, but we think that Paul was specifically worried about a Jewish sect called halakha mysticism. Now, halakha comes from the Hebrew word halach, which means to walk. So when Paul says, walk in Messiah Jesus, he's likely specifically taking aim at this new idea that's threatening to corrupt the theology of the church in Colossae. Now, my guess is going out on a limb here. My guess is that most of those people in this room have never heard of halakha before. I just said it. And that you probably forgot the word before I just said it a third time. So for us, the whole idea of halakha mysticism doesn't seem to have the same power of persuasion as it might have to the first century Christians in Colossae, but the premise is as familiar as it gets. Paul puts it hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on the Messiah, Jesus. Now, by elemental spiritual forces, Paul means spiritual powers that are set against God. It's what the Bible calls angels or even gods with a lowercase g. And what we often call demons or the forces of evil in the world. So really that about covers it. Everything that isn't 
the way of Jesus, in Paul's mind, is either from human beings, so it's not to be equated with God, or it's from demonic spiritual forces, which are set against God. So any way you slice it, it isn't from God. That's why Paul keeps building out this incredible case for the supremacy of Jesus. Think back to that passage we began the evening by reading, that so that he might have the supremacy, he is above all things and before all things. In Paul's mind, he's thinking, why on earth... Would anyone go to anything other than the creator God, the origin, the source of all truth and all goodness for truth and goodness? If you want truth and you want to know what's right, then you should go to the source, Paul thinks. In his commentary on this text, Doug Moo writes, In this short phrase, the dominant theological teaching of the letter is brought to bear on the central purpose of the letter. Christ is the one in whom God exclusively is to be found, the one through whom the world was created and through whom it is redeemed, and the one who has decisively defeated all the hostile powers. Any teaching that in any way detracts from Christ's exclusive role is by definition both wrong and ineffective. That is what Paul is getting at again and again and again. So he's essentially reestablishing and reaffirming the foundation. Remember, you came to believe that Jesus is the master. Don't give up on that. Continue in that. Now, here's an analogy that I am sure is, is sure to stir your soul. <laughs> Back in uh, 2019, my friend uh, Peter and Patrick uh, my brother and myself, we started uh, exercising together. One thing that brought us together was a shared reverence for none other than the Austrian oak himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, objectively, the world's all-time greatest bodybuilder and action movie star. And we would often call on Arnold's wisdom and advice, unironically, videos, articles, old footage of his you know, bodybuilding career, or I guess current day footage of his bodybuilding career, in crafting our own fitness regime. And I kid you not, in almost every workout together, we would end up saying something like, well, Arnold does it this way, or I saw Arnold do this, or I read that Arnold prefers this, and that would kind of settle it. Someone would say, oh, I wonder if we should do it this way or that way. Arnold does it this way. Oh, great, okay, Arnold does it that way, that's it. And if anyone would ever call Arnold's superior wisdom into question, the, on, the other two would hold them accountable for their heresy. There was a time when there was a whole argument about time between sets or something. You remember that, Peter? And Peter was like, Arnold says two minutes. Peter says, I think it should be longer than that. And me and Patrick were like, two minutes. Arnold said, <laughs> and it wasn't just a fanboy thing. I guess probably a lot of it was that. But the way we figured, Arnold seems to be an authority on this topic. So we'd seen the, the proof of it. We'd, now you see the proof of it. So we will defer to his wisdom. That, and that was clarifying. That was freeing for us because, my God, I don't know if you know this, but fitness stuff is up there with like raising children and getting vaccines in terms of debate and disagreement and how many different answers you can get to any different question that you might ask. So you can spin your wheels in that quagmire getting a dozen different answers to one simple question, or you can just pick a direction and go. And our direction was Arnold. Now, <laughs> I realize that this analogy is weird because in it, Arnold is the proxy for Jesus. <laughs> but I'm sure you get the point. It's just an analogy. It breaks down over time. The point is that it is clarifying and freeing, and I would argue it's exciting to narrow a billion and one competing truth claims down to a single person in Jesus. And when we do this well, 
when we grow and mature over time, we do not become closed-minded or walled off from the world. We do not become terrified of any new and different idea. We learn to hear and, as best as we can, understand why other people believe other things graciously, and we aren't afraid of those things. We aren't afraid because our theological framework can handle it. And as far as we're concerned, our minds are made up. Jesus is the truth as far as we're concerned. And we don't impose that on other people with any kind of rudeness or rule-mongering or aggressive you know, evangelism. In our minds, Jesus is the truth, and we live accordingly. So Paul's logic is simple. You know, he says to the church in Colossae, you know the true king. He's the only source of truth. Do not allow anything that deviates from the king and the truth to lead you astray and, in his language, to capture you. The world of the Pacific Northwest and of the greater Portland metro area is ripe with pseudo-spirituality. Um, one great example that I can think of is, I'm sure you've seen the, the prayer flag trend all over the place, which is hilarious to me because the prayer flag thing likely originated in something called Bon, which was the pre-Buddhist religion of Tibet, which is why these things are often called Tibetan prayer flags. And of which, fun fact, the left-facing swastika is the sacred symbol. But where are all the left-facing swastikas, Portland houses? Be consistent, people. My guess is that Few of the homes sporting the prayer flags actually house anyone serious about Bond, but what do I know? This could be the cynicism talking. I have lots of it. I often suspect that the post-Christian world of the progressive spiritual cocktail is strictly ornamental. It is to sincere religious spirituality what McDonald's is to culinary excellence. This, to me, summarizes the modern fast food buffet approach to spirituality. So the idea is that, you know, the jaded former Christians are loading up their plastic trays with fried Buddhist hors d'oeuvres and their downing Hindu sample, sample cups and bite-sized New Age nuggets impaled on the toothpicks with the little plastic thing on top and they, because they skimmed an article or they heard a podcast or they started but did not finish a book. But the beginning sounded pretty convincing. And they're piling up the toppings on their political ideology Sunday because politics are a hearty religion indeed. And none of it really fits together exactly and none of it really satisfies the deep questions of the soul. None of it really nourishes. But it tastes good if only for a moment when we're nibbling. And for Paul, that idea makes no sense. This new idea is coming to eke its way into the church, and it's not necessarily obviously and explicitly anti-Christian so much as it is a deviation from the deep truth of Jesus disguised as some kind of new development of the faith. So in the past, Paul is saying, you were once sickly and malnourished. Your arteries were clogged. You were on insulin and blood thinners and you had heart attacks and you'd suffered depression and fatigue, but you were healed of all those things. Your circumstances have been reversed. You were lifted up from your ailments and you went, perf you went forward, not perfect by any means, but better, and you found real food, real nourishment. You left the fast food, fried food, spiritual buffet behind. So Paul is saying, keep walking in that direction. Don't go back to the old grease traps. Now that you know better, live like you actually know better. All you have to do, Paul argues, is continue in Jesus. Jesus is the rubric under which all discernment is accomplished. And it's not that Paul is anti-Jewish and thus dislikes the halakhic mysticism. 
Paul is about as Jewish as it gets. And it's not that God has got it out for political ideologies or fast food Buddhism or progressive New Age mumbo-jumbo and suburban prayer flags because he just hates all those things and he's just so insecure he can't handle the idea that anyone would think differently. It's just that they are not the way of Jesus. So that's that. It's not that Paul was terrified of the host culture and he was so desperate to keep anyone from ever hearing a different idea. It certainly wasn't the case that he wanted disciples of Jesus to shrink away from the culture and to hide out from the culture because they just can't handle knowing that someone believes something different. Paul spent most of his life amongst pagans. He moved in and throughout a world that wanting nothing, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He never demonstrated any interest in creating a Christian bubble in which to hide and white-knuckle it and wait for Jesus to come back. He actually lived into the exact opposite philosophy. A world at odds with Jesus, Paul knew, is the world that we know. So the idea is that you learn to live graciously in it without being taken captive by it. Now, here's the thing. If you've been paying attention at all these last few weeks, all of this is starting to sound familiar. I get it. And that's not a mistake. This is where the text is leading. Here's what we've been building thus far. Jesus is God. As you carry out life in the host culture, surrounded by people who disagree, you are going to hear otherwise, but don't let those ideas take you captive. Remain in Jesus and keep going. Discipleship to Jesus goes forward. It is not a static stance, not an intellectual belief. It is a way of life. So learn, grow, and become more like Jesus over time. And the test of that growth will be, get this, gratitude. While I was studying this week, that last thing sort of surprised me. Gratitude? I think if I were asked about the test of growth and maturity, the proof in the pudding, as it were, I might default to something like behavior or, I don't know, budget or reputation or something like that, the outward quantifiable measures of formation. And those aren't wrong, really. Paul chooses to package them within a general disposition of, of all things, gratitude, and a life lived from gratitude. Ronald Rollheiser once wrote, gratitude is the ultimate virtue, undergirding everything else, even love. It is synonymous with holiness. We are mature to the degree that we are grateful. The holiest person you know is the most grateful person you know. That is true, too, for love. The most loving person you know is also the most grateful person you know because even love finds its basis in gratitude. When we try to root our love in anything else, shared ideology, ethnicity, gender, pity, cause, religion, or anger, it will invariably be more self-serving than life-giving. Rollheiser argues that living as if this were true depends on our ability to differentiate that which comes to us by right as opposed to that, that which comes to us as gift. My generation was raised on the Fred Rogers after-school special philosophy of you're perfect just the way you are and you can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be. And most of us, it took us a while to learn that this wasn't actually true. Most of us, we were pretty upset about the whole thing. And the feud between millennials and boomers was about things like work ethic and commitment and privilege. The often volatile social justice movement of the past decade was about turning the tables on the elite and the 99% against the big bad one. 
And we were bent out of shape about not getting what was coming to us. And we were bent out of shape by all that life took from us. Or we were bent out of shape by the injustice of every single thing. And sometimes we were on to something. Sometimes, th- sometimes things weren't fair. They weren't right. And something needed to be said about that. But then there were other times when we found ourselves staring at an empty plate that we were sure life was supposed to fill for us. And we were angry. Life owed us big time. And this is why gratitude can be a real challenge for me personally. Years ago, before Van City, on a Sunday night during a church gathering, during a time of listening prayer, I asked specifically for God to, if he was willing to define for me my vocation, my calling in life, even in in a word or a phrase. I said, will you tell me what it is that you made me to do in the broadest sense, narrowed down to just something simple that I can take with me? And I half expected nothing to come, but the answer came, and it was very clear in that moment that I felt as if God was saying to me, I want you to incite rebellion. Rebellion against the status quo, against the lies that people are led to believe. And that was a powerful and clarifying moment for me. But I don't have to tell you guys, there's good rebellion and there's bad rebellion. And I am very good at the latter. I import into my God-given calling a confrontational edginess whether he's asked me to do that or not. Rebellion, I tell myself, requires a constant analysis of broken patterns and systems and calling things out, and it requires a maintained degree of dissatisfaction with everything. But real rebellion in the story of the scriptures, God's rebellion is against dissatisfaction. For a while now, every single morning, I wake up, and in my time of prayer and with the scriptures, I will pray through several slow repetitions of Psalm 23. And every time, as I begin again and again, I concentrate on that famous first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Rollheiser argued that maturity is synonymous with gratitude, And he said that, this really got to me, that mature people enjoy their lives. They are not frustrated or embittered or entitled. They recognize that all of life is a gift and they choose to enjoy the gift that they've been given in life. And to be honest, this is pressing in my discipleship right now. I've been meeting with a spiritual director. I've been talking about this very thing. It's not that I feel specifically ungrateful per se. It's just that part of me still reaches out for that more that I thought I was promised. Part of me worries about missed opportunities in the passage of time. Part of me compares what others have and what others have done to what I feel is missing in my own story. Part of me worries and laments that I'm missing something, that I won't be who I was meant to be. And then every morning, again and again, in the quiet, sitting on my couch, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Paul believes that if we live constantly informed by the reality that God knows us, that he saw us and he came to us in Jesus, that he rescued us from death and destruction, that he loves us, if that reality is ever before us, then what could we be but grateful? All of life's defects, everything we assume is owed to us, pales before the awesome and incredible truth that we are God's 
beloved. With all our failures and disappointments, we are God's beloved. He refuses to have us lost. He went after us. He took the initiative. We have then seen the truth, and the truth has set us free. Now we lack nothing. I often think of the catchphrases of the self-help Instagram philosophy like, you are worthy and you are enough. A little while ago, someone went around my neighborhood erecting little placards that said as much. And I don't think that I agree personally. I do believe that we are made in God's image and that we are loved by God vis-a-vis nothing. Whether we love him or not, we're loved by God. But we, in the story of the scriptures anyway, as people, as a species collectively, not so great. We're not worthy of God's love at all. But he just went ahead and gave it to us anyway. We were not worthy or good, but God made us worthy and good. And though he didn't owe us anything at all, even though we as a species were, in the story of the scriptures, anything worthy of death. You're not worthy because you're just so special and great exactly how you are. But in the Bible, you're worried because God is such incredible love that his love penetrated your unworthiness and made you whole and perfect and without blemish in his sight. Before you did a single thing, all, in all your brokenness and with all your garbage, you were already God's beloved. And a gift like that can shape us if we let it. To be completely honest with you guys, it's been, in some ways, anyway, a discouraging season for me personally. Figuring out what's going on with our church and who's here and who isn't post-pandemic has been a strange and frustrating bummer. But in other ways, life has been and is wonderful. Abby and I, my wife Abby and I are doing really well. I feel healthier personally than I've been in many years. Our family is thriving. thriving. We've got the new little dude on the way. So life is an in tandem thing. I don't have to tell you this. You know it already. I've already admitted my struggles, but then I talk about how good things are because these things coexist constantly in the same place. And even if those other great things that I'm experiencing at the moment weren't so great right now, I would still be God's beloved son. Though I am undeserving and unworthy, he loved me first. Pain and beauty in the same place. So I have a decision to make. Which thing will compel me? Gratitude, we know, doesn't wash over pain. It isn't dismissive of suffering. And thankfulness isn't willpower. Do you get that? As if you could control your own emotions at will. You can't. Gratitude is a cultivated lifestyle that against the trials of life that come as both slow leaks and tidal waves, depending on the season, when and if good things are pried from our desperate fingers, we curl ourselves into the unbreakable and inescapable love of God again and again and again. And it shapes who we are and who we are becoming. For anything and everything good or bad in life, we are and will be God's beloved children, his daughters and his sons. He doesn't have to love us, but he does. God doesn't owe you anything, and yet he gives you everything. 
Some theologians argue, and I agree personally, that libertarian freedom becomes compatibilist freedom over time, meaning early in life, you are completely free to do other than you do. You're something like a blank slate of free will, give or take. But the more that you are shaped by life and by the decisions that you make, the things that you do and the things that are done to you, you are formed across the years of your life, and those decision-making parameters become a little more narrow as you go. You are less likely to do other than you do. You are gradually boxed in by the narrow scope of your own heart. Which is why, for the most part, all of us know two kinds of people who are very far along in life. You know kind, warm, generous, soft, gentle people who are very far along in life, and you know angry, embittered, frustrated, paranoid, petty people who are very old. The kind of person who's eager to give all they have away to others and the kind of person who's angry and resentful, the kind of person who leaves comments up and down the next door app, you know, about a suspicious noise that they heard from the neighbor's house and they can't sleep now because they just want to know something's being done about this noise. Your goal as a disciple of Jesus is to walk in unbridled, joyful thanksgiving to God so that you become soft-hearted and self-sacrificial more and more as you advance in years throughout your life. And the test of mature and radical discipleship will be gratitude. And when you continue in the truth of Jesus, with the truth, the truth of Jesus ever before you, what he's done for you and who he has called you to be and what he's continuing to do for you, you can become grateful, overflowing in thanksgiving. How could we not? We lack nothing. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to lead us in the ways of gratitude. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.